Well, hello and welcome to the latest edition of Election Watch, a series brought to you by the Perth US Asia Centre and United States Study Centre, reviewing the latest in US politics with a focus on the upcoming US election, now just over eight weeks away. And it's Labor Day weekend, the final reset before the 2020 campaign in this really crazy year gets underway in earnest. I'm Zoe Daniel, former ABC US Bureau Chief, and it's great to be here. Before I introduce our panel today, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. I further acknowledge the traditional owners of the country which you're on, and pay respects to their elders, past, present and future. Our special guest this month is Mark Texter, co-founder and non-executive director of CT Group. He has been the pollster and electoral strategist behind the election victories for seven Commonwealth Prime Ministers over scores of elections, described by Channel 4 in the UK as one of the most influential political strategists and pollsters to walk the planet. And in Australia as a genius at transforming the raw research into compelling communication. Former London Mayor and now Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who sought Texas Council on two successful campaigns, confirmed this view, describing him as the sorcerer of numbers. Also on our expert panel today, Professor Simon Jackman, CEO of the US Studies Centre, former Professor of Political Science and Statistics at Stanford, and Professor Gordon Flake, founding CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre, previously of the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Foundation, the Program on Conflict Resolution at the Atlantic Council of the US, and the Korea Economic Institute of America. Welcome to you, you all, gentlemen. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mark, let's start with polls, which, of course, we know were way off target in 2016. We have seen some movement in the last few weeks with the Biden lead appearing to peak in July, Donald Trump making up some ground from a convention bounce and now the suggestion that bounce may have been short-lived. How do you read that roller coaster eight weeks out? Well, it has been a roller coaster, And, you know, before we start, there's a couple of caveats that that we know from previous US study centers uh, seminars on this subject in that it's very, there's so many different things about this election. If I were doing this, my job in the United States, I'd be very worried about my predictive capacity. You've got ballot turnout, you've got high partisanship, you've got concerns about, you know, health impacts of turnout. You've got some very strange divisions within turnout. And for example, one of the things we know uh, from the Pew research into inaccuracies at the last election is that college education is uh, a big determinant of, uh, of, of turnout and therefore of accuracy in polls and lower, uh, less than college educated, I think uh, Simon Jackman, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but less than college educated women, uh, women uh, people last time um, were under-enumerated in the polls, particularly in the swing states. And on the latest data we had from we have from associates that presented to my team yesterday uh, from our associates in the US, we're finding massive differentials uh, on on potential turnout and partisanship by by um, college education, and particularly with women. So it seems to be everyone's talking about a civil war in the United States. <laughs> A um, bit fanciful, but it's a nice narrative. But we seem to have a civil war now between differential turnout between white, no college educated education women uh, who, if they turn out, favour heavily Trump um, and, and who are more numerous but, and uh, against white college educated women, uh, college educated women as opposed to non-college educated women that are heavily in favour of Biden, uh, who, if they turn out, definitely... Uh, help Biden. So, you know, how, how accurate are the polls that have been published, particularly in the swing states, uh, remembering that the, uh, the predictions last time of overall, um, uh, overall uh, percentage for each presidential candidates were, were accurate. What they didn't pick is the college vote, uh, electoral college vote. So we have this bizarre demographic divide which then accentuates particular risk as to accuracy. And as we were talking about earlier, 
um, and, in, and in previous sessions, we have in the data from our associates, very, very low numbers historically, in fact, never been lower, of hard undecideds. That is, the number of people that have no idea about who they're going to vote for between the two presidential candidates is as it, at its lowest ebb. So uh, as our colleagues on the call say, you know, you wouldn't want to be behind because there's not a lot of folk, uh, there's not a lot of folk to mine out there apart from the voters on the other side. So you've got to be very persuasive. But at the moment, we seem to have, you know, two tribal camps deeply embedded. And that describes every single data point we're seeing in the United States right now. The thing that's most not noticeable is a partisan divide, whether it's on COVID and, and health measures, whether it's on the economy, whether it's on defence measures. It's the partisan divide measurements in terms of our long-term tracking in the United States have never been more stark. And that's the so, thing that stands out for me. So given that, if we have a historical uh, low undecided number, people have retreated to their corners, why is no one prepared to call this in the sense of Donald Trump's going to lose? Here we are eight weeks out. Is it because everyone was so burnt in 2016 that they just don't have the courage to put that on the table? Well, I, it's, it's maybe that, but it's also there are so many known unknowns. We don't know what the effect of the postal vote will be. We don't truly know, I think, although there's been some modelling, what the effect of health concerns will be, say, on Democratic voters going out. Republican voters are probably more bullshy about turning up to a voting booth without the mask. All these things really haven't been measured because there's not a precedent for them. And if it was were me working for Trump, You'd be saying, God, this is a very hard thing to, to measure. But the interesting thing for me is at least there's some self-awareness in the United States right now because on, on, on certain metrics we've been having a look at, one is the perception that tribalism, political tribalism, is getting worse in the United States. And regardless of whether you're Democrat or Republican or Independent, the only thing of which there's no difference is an agreement that everyone's more tribal. And in fact, since March, on our numbers, there's been a doubling uh, of the number of people that agree that America has become more tribal uh, mm. <laughs> during COVID. So, so as a colleague from the US said, um, COVID is the steroid for political tribalism. You talked about the Electoral College briefly there. When you're looking at the polls, do you even take much notice or care much about the head-to-head -head polling, given that last time it was largely irrelevant? Or are you looking at just those uh, tight state polls? Well, as, as a campaign pollster as opposed to an observer, you know, let's take the Australian situation really you're not much interested in national polls. You are insofar as they generate national stories, affect donors, affect the, um, the, the, the morale of your troops and backbenchers and you don't want the split. But really what you're looking at is the swing marginal seats that will determine the makeup of parliament. The equivalent of that is the swing states, uh, particularly winners take all, that would make up the electoral college, and they are they are two different things. So, particularly with winner take all, um, you know, a small percentage difference can make a massive difference in 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 the result of the of the electoral college numbers, and therefore a small margin of error in a very important electoral college state or a swing state can have enormous influence on the predictive capacity of uh, of, of of your polling. So. All eyes with the pros are going to be on the swing states and the accuracy of swing states. They're not going to waste a lot of money on national polls. They're going to be going straight to swing states and they're going to be doing massive samples in the swing states as well as building those databases in the swing states as well. Simon, you picked the fact that Biden was tapering back in July. How did you read Trump's slight post-convention bounce and now what uh, 538 and others are describing as perhaps a, a quite a rapid tapering off of that. 
Yeah, um, look, I don't ever, I never thought it was going to stay an eight, nine, ten point race. That's historically way out there on the edge of what we've seen, you know, in the 20th century history of, of US elections. So the idea this is going to be that lopsided all the way to November, but I don't think it was ever on the cards. You know, Trump was going to make up ground. Um, he had a pretty good convention. Um, and I think if, you're, if you were looking at those four days from, through Republican eyes, um, it did what it was supposed to do. He's behind in the polls. He needed to give his base a big shot in the arm, but his base only gets him so far. Um, and this is the big sort of, I think, structural issue um, confronting Republicans in a more general sense in the United States, perhaps Donald Trump in particular. He did a good job of unpicking that lock with some very, very efficient, if you will, and narrow wins in, in three or four swing states in particular that allowed him to win the Electoral College um, but lose the, lose the national vote. Um, and I think what you're seeing is sort of, okay, people saw that great, that nice rally, but very quickly in the, in the aftermath, we've got back to sort of someone's business as usual for Donald and, Trump. And um, so what, what's, our, what's, what's your comfort level in regard to a margin? <laughs> if we build in our, we really stuffed it up in 2016, a kind of nervousness uh, ratio. It, it what, what, what's, your, what's your 2020 margin of error? Well, this is work we're doing. I'm, you know, I'm, we're releasing a report next week. So we're here at the study center, really you know, putting my poli-sci nerd hat back on for a bit and doing a very deep dive on the state polls from 16. Um, and this is the point, right? How far ahead would you need to see Biden ahead in national polls to say, well, there's no way there could be a mismatch between, I say, a five-point national margin, and is there a way for Trump to still, you know, take the election despite trailing five points nationally? Mm. That's hard. That's a hard sort because there's lots of ways Trump could do it. If you look just straight at the swing state polls, right now they point to a pretty convincing um, a Biden win. The problem is that you know, you've got to ask yourself a question. Has the polling industry corrected all that ailed it in 16? Mm -hmm. And as, you know, as Tech just said, we were, we were talking to um, Courtney Kennedy from the Pew Institution um, about this very issue. Um, and, and she said, maybe, maybe not, right? And have you, you know, simple things like, have you got your education waiting right? Um, simple things like that. And has the, have those state level polls lifted their game? The answer is some have, some haven't. So, the exercise we've been doing, Zoe, is to say, okay, just take the poll error from 16 and overlay that on the state polls we're seeing right now. Where does that land you? And where it lands you is a very, very narrow Biden lead still at this point. Um, and that's why, Zoe, everybody's so gun shy about this. Everybody's looking at, wow, poll after poll saying Biden up by six, seven, eights nationally. And you're going, but, 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 right? Yeah. I can't trust the swing state polls. <laughs> And then, and then Mark's other point, finally, Zoe, is that just that other source of uncertainty, uh, who is going to show up and, and, and who is actually going to be able to have their vote counted. And all of that are things that pollsters have no history with, particularly that last piece, um, this gap between people saying they're going to vote, people actually going to vote, but actually is their vote going to make it into the official statistics that will decide this thing at the end of the day? Pollsters have right. very little ability it's, to give you guidance on that. It's crystal ball gazing even now, uh, just eight weeks out. And having covered the 2016 campaign, I find it very relatable because I, I kind of don't <laughs> believe any of it, to be honest. Um, I want to come back to Mark in a second, but Gordon, first to you. Now, we, we, we've talked about this sort of immovable base and Mark talked about the, the sort of historically low number of undecideds. But what I always wonder about is the people that I like to call the secret Trumpers, the, the people that we actually don't know about or that aren't showing up in that polling do you think they're there do they do they actually exist are they a factor i think they're there but i think they're pretty well captured in that uh, approval rating for president trump right now you, you started off the conversation by referring to the polls as a roller coaster and i i kind of was taken aback by that because it's only a roller coaster if you're looking at it really closely in minute detail it's really kind of the kiddie coaster at the amusement park because uh, the, the thing that most defines uh, opinions about President Trump and the polling for the last year has been its incredible stability. You know, and, and now within that stability, there's some things where I completely agree with Mark. 
the, the tribalism is obviously a factor. I mean, how else do you account for the fact that at the beginning of this year, you know, President Trump's approval rating was around 41%, and today is 43%, despite the fact that you've had this, you know, incredible pandemic, you know, 190,000 deaths, you had collapse of the economy, massive social unrest, and yet his approval rating goes up 2%, right? There's, there's no other possible explanation for that. But the notion that there exists some kind of mystical Trump voters outside of that, you know, that, that really made a lot more sense in 2016 when he was an unknown quantity. At this point, I don't think there's a lot of Americans who haven't made up their mind about either Trump or Biden. It seems pretty clear. So for me going to this, I, I tend to be a little bit more optimistic. You know, we're at 8% right now, approximately in terms of the gap. Uh, the question I think we should be asking is, what would President Trump need to do to close that gap? Yeah. And then the more important question, is he capable of it? And Simon already alluded to this, right? If he stayed on message, and again, whether you agreed or not, you know, the, the Republican convention was about message, message, message. You know, the last you know, week, President Trump has not been on message. And I see little indication over the last three years that he's going to stay on message between now and the election. So that's going to be an interesting thing. One area where I, I furiously agree, however, with both Mark and Simon is that the polls themselves are just an indication of what might happen in a normal year when election proceeded as normally. Right now, the president has uh, the full force of the U.S. government being utilized as a campaign apparatus. You know, so whether it's holding the convention at the White House itself, you know, the suppression of, of you know, intelligence that suggests that the Trump campaign continues to collude or at least collaborate with the, the, the Russians on messaging, being suppressed, not being released. You know, that's something that we really haven't seen before. We certainly didn't see in 2016. Then when you add on to that, the uncertainties that Mark and Simon just addressed, you know, the questions of how COVID affects people's turnout, real efforts to suppress the vote, the president's own suggestion this week that his voters should go out and vote, vote twice, you know, vote online and just to test the system. There's a lot of potential for chaos. And I think that's the question. I don't think there's anybody that thinks that if this was a fair and free election and it was held today, we you know, would have any ambiguity about the results. But we do have a real concern because we actually just don't know how these factors are going to play when it comes to actual turnout. Mm. And I mean, just to qualify what I said about being a roller coaster, I think to, for me it's about timing. Uh, Biden sort of being on the up and then tapering at, just as Trump gets a bounce and then tapers. So the question is, well, now what happens over the next eight weeks? Much as I absolutely accept your contention that there has been stability. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, um, there's been stability in, in Donald Trump's base the entire time that I've been following what he's been doing. Um, Mark, uh, Gordon points to exactly what I was about to ask you, which is, okay, what are the central factors that could change these numbers over the next eight weeks? Uh, economy up, COVID down, seem to be the, the two keys to that. But what do you see being influential? Well, I mean, eight weeks is, is a long time. I remember before, you know, when we were running David Cameron's campaign in the UK in 2015, you know, the, we're still behind at the national polls, uh, you know, a long way up. And the first thing, if you're sitting in that campaign headquarters every day and, it's three, and you're getting up at 3.30am and going to bed at 11, eight weeks is a hell of a long time. I mean, it's a hell of a long time. Um, I know it doesn't seem that way outside of the campaign, but it is, in real terms, a long time to do a lot of stuff. I think the a couple of points. Firstly, from a campaigner's perspective, one of the things that Donald Trump does that has done that that was on the package, as it were, was be unconventional. Now, whether that's a good or bad thing, so I'll remain neutral on that, but, but certainly he's unconventional. And yet he hasn't had the forum where, that, where he's able to, to, to unsettle his opponent. So he clearly did that with Hillary. He unsettled her, in, in particularly in the debates. He was, a, you know, despite accusations that, you know, he's, he's not the smartest person in the world, he's actually pretty cunning. And those, those head-to-heads allowed him to demonstrate the difference between an unconventional non-Washington type and a career politician. Now, up to this point, um, uh, he just hasn't had the opportunity to do that. So you've had these two set piece kind of conventions, but putting aside the efficacy of each one, 
But the real thing for me about both was that they were kind of set pieces. Yes, you know, Trump's was probably a little better than Biden's, but really didn't allow Trump that, that insurgent quality that he's most capable of to sort of, to, 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 to really, to really uh, go after Biden. And I, look, I'm neutral on them uh, professionally, but I, I think Trump would be better at that and present that and uh, this idea of an insurgent person still taking on Washington. And particularly since his message is, you know, Biden's been there a long time, he's part of the problem, right? And he just hasn't had the capability of doing that. The other thing is that my friends from Heart and Minds, minds uh, you know, ex-Worthland people that started a new, you know, deeper qualitative research company were saying that particularly with those swing uh, female audiences, the very interesting thing about Trump is the, the ones who were most sort of flexible on turnout didn't like him, but were willing to turn out for two reasons. They liked his economic policy, hip pocket, that it's not these great global, you know, global geopolitical issues. They were very much still hip pocket, you know, kids' education, cost, all those sorts of things. And moreover, on those hip pocket issues, they were anti-Biden, if you're with me. So two things. They didn't like Trump, yes, so that measurement's a bit of a furphy because they were using him as the device to send a message about their policy priorities. So remember that word, policy? Well, we, we haven't heard a lot about it. And certainly hip pocket and, and economic issues are still, you know, to the fore despite, despite COVID. And I think the real challenge for, for, for Biden is given those things, given the style of his campaign and his, where he's comfortable, and given that he's got to focus on some pretty basic bread and butter issues to get over this, so it's not all about, you know, uh, health and social dislocation, which is more Biden's territory, to get into his, on his football field instead of Biden's football field, he hasn't had the occasion. Now, maybe because the, the campaign is starting to compact and compress and there is more straight head-to-head -head ideas rather than two, two lots of set pieces, that might provide him an opportunity. But for me, that would be a must. If he doesn't get the opportunity to, to be that insurgent in government, as it were, and confront Biden, it's very hard to see him changing those numbers. I'm curious as to your take on how you read the way that COVID plays for Trump. I think the assumption from outside is that everyone automatically assumes that Americans blame him um, for what's resulted from the virus aside from the, the poor handling of it and that that would be an automatic negative for him at the polls. Do you think that's true? Well, on, on the tracking that we've got from our associates in the States, the net impact on social order depends on the party. So um, Republicans are neutral about the impact on social order of, of, of COVID and the riots. I'm, I'm putting the two together, right? So they're going, okay, whatever. It's certainly a driver for, uh, for, uh, for independent and Democrat voters. I, I would say that it's obviously a net negative, um, particularly since that his agenda was pretty much um, one of you know tax cuts, getting ahead, opportunity, economic opportunity, hip pocket issues for working class families. It's an agenda setting problem. So in, in in political management, we really don't sit there and have arguments about winning five points. So say 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 on best candidate for handling of COVID, right? And let's assume that that I haven't seen the numbers lately, but let's assume. Um, uh, uh, Trump is 15 points behind um, Biden. And let's assume he does really well and knocks off his deficit by a third, right, and goes down to 10 points deficit. Well, that's a waste of time when he should be flipping to an issue like the economy or hip pocket where he might have a 20-point lead. Mm -hmm. And so th that's what I'm really talking about is that most of the time, you know, um, you know, you talk to even, you know, one of, one of our good friends is Jim Messina, um, uh, you know, in the, and uh, the Obama's pollster of note. And, you know, swapping notes with him, 
different parties, different countries, different hemisphere, but he thinks of it the same way, which is how can we deal with this issue in, so way, in such a way that we can move on to our strengths? Mm. And, and the real problem with COVID for Trump, in my view, is he really hasn't been able to do that except with his own voters and not the undecideds and maybe not the people a bit undecided on turnout. That, that's his real problem, I think. Yeah, I, I feel like it's the only time that he's actually lost control of the narrative and the conversation. Every time previously when there's been something going on over here, he's been able to turn the narrative where he wants it to go. This has been difficult or more difficult for him to control. What I'm wondering too is that in 2016, you know, clearly a lot of people in the media and elsewhere missed what was going on, perhaps because they didn't get out and talk to actual ordinary people enough to try to read sentiment. I wonder whether there's a risk of that being repeated because COVID has, has restricted movement so much that it's difficult to actually analyse what's going on outside where you are. And then secondly, from Trump's well, perspective... Well, everyone, everyone, everyone wants to read the tea leaves instead of drinking the damn tea. Right. So... Um, you know, go drink the tea if you want to find out about the tea. Don't read the tea leaves. And that's essentially the problem in modern political analysis is that there's derived products everywhere, right? So mm. um, I remember, for example, with the issue of Gonski in Australia. Remember the Gonski reforms? Um, we had, you know, weeks and weeks of, of saturation coverage in the media about Gonski you know, what it meant, you know, what it meant for the government's agenda at the time, the politics of it, the demographics of it. And yet when we surveyed the electorate, 80% plus didn't know what Gonski was, <laughs> right? So everyone's going way ahead of the electorate. And what you'll find, particularly in the United States and Australia, what we have in common is the political analysis accelerates way beyond the ability of people to, 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 to grasp the basics, right? So here we are talking about demographics of the electorate is what campaign pollsters do is ask a much more fundamental question, which is what do they want, mm. right? You know, do they want tax cuts? Are they worried about how they're going to use their vote? So not who they're voting for today. That, that's to be determined still. It's eight weeks away. What these campaign guys will be saying is uh, what... What is axial here? If we have to get an extra turnout group, what issues will we turn them out on? And they are pretty fundamental issues. The difficulty is, is that with all us highbrow lot talking about this other stuff, particularly in social, you know, in media, it's very hard to use a traditional media to talk about that basic stuff to the punters when it's all about tactics and therefore that's why they're using Facebook. That's why they're using direct, mm -hmm. direct, um, you know, direct messaging, phone calls, street visits and all these things. And that's to your point. The reason I'm saying this is that's what we don't see. We don't see the pamphlets going through the door. We don't hear the messages being delivered on telephones. That is, you know, the, the elites, obviously we do because it's our job. Uh, we don't see, um, the interaction at the town halls beyond the speech. And that's what, that's what you really got to listen to. It's always very telling to find out, you know, from a call centre what's been said. That's really telling because you know they are the very issue. So, for example, if in Wisconsin right now the swing voter or turnout, swing turnout voter is getting messages about high school education costs or... Uh, Biden's tax policies or Kamala Harris's attitude to law and order, you know, ah, that's what they're getting in the research. That's what's turning on voters. And mm. uh, we don't get to hear that. In all the great detrius of the coverage of the US elections, we don't get that. I think that's compounded too by the thinning of local and regional media that you, you tend Absolutely. to get a lack of detailed policy analysis in regard to this is how this will affect me in my environment. Everything's discussed at a national level. Now, I want to get, get back to the other guys. You don't get but, the old boss box anymore either. Uh, well, no. Well, you, I guess you can if you actually 
get off your backside and go out and ask people. But just before I go back to uh, Simon and Gordon, I, I wanted to get to one more point about the sort of style of campaign. It strikes me that one restriction for Trump so far has been, that you know, he thrives on these big rallies, these big events. He hasn't been able to do them again because of COVID. Does that level the playing field with Biden to some degree because he can't get out and actually uh, generate attention, excitement and, and use um, what he has, which is his, his personality, his, his image. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a function of, or part of what I was talking about before, which is, mm. you know, he's unconventional. Whatever you think of the way he's unconventional, he's unconventional. Um, and it's pretty hard to be unconventional when you've got sort of TV set pieces and, you know, one-on-one -on -one interviews with, 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 with um, Jonathan Swan. You know, so so it's it's <laughs> difficult for him because he needs that not confrontational element, but he does need that direct element, either direct with Biden, in my view, or direct with the people. He does bounce off them, um, mm. and he's missed that energy. So even though it was a good campaign, I thought both campaign launches just lacked energy and passion. They looked a bit ham-fisted, both of them, compared to what we normally see, and it's because the campaign teams and the convention teams had never done something like that before. So it wasn't polished and it wasn't even fake polished. It, it was, it was all very stilted in my view. And I think the U S voters thought so as well. Gordon, um, in October, 2016, we saw the first, the access Hollywood tapes exposing Trump's uh, language and behavior towards women, then the renewed focus on Hillary Clinton's emails just days before the election. So, you know, in terms of October surprises, it, it was kind of uh, somewhat out of the box. Um, do you expect, or would it be standard that we would expect to see an October surprise of sorts in that run-up? Well, there's certainly a concern. Earlier this week, Simon and I had a chance to have a wonderful conversation at a USSC program with John Bolton, and, and Bolton himself expressed a concern about an October surprise. Those tend to be foreign policy. They tend to be a little bit more wag the dog type scenarios where you, you gin up something abroad that will kind of bolster your support, you know, foster patriotism. That highlights a particular vulnerability that President Trump has. Uh, he, in recent polls, has been shown to be falling behind Joe Biden among military families. Uh, and that, that, that's a, it's just a real shift. Um, uh, and, and I think you're going to see a lot in the next week, in fact, two weeks, probably for the rest of the campaign, precisely about Trump's relationship with the military. And despite the fact that, you know, his treatment of Gold Star families, which previously was sacrosanct back in the 2016 campaign, didn't have much of an impact, over time, there does seem to be some cumulative erosion. There was a remarkable uh, article out just today by Jeffrey Goldberg in The Atlantic uh, detailing, it, you know, President Trump's attitude towards the military. And we're all familiar, again, with the 2016 campaign, President Trump's remarks towards John McCain being a prisoner of war, saying, I like people who weren't captured. But apparently he's gone beyond that uh, set of, of war dead in, in U.S. military cemeteries in Europe, that there were losers and there were suckers and not able in his very own transactional mindset to understand why people would do these types of things. And my guess is those are areas of weakness where you're going to see uh, not the Biden campaign necessarily, but increasingly the very vocal and very virulent anti-Trump Republicans who are very familiar with all the dark arts that Mark knows very well, and they're applying them with some incredible effects. So the, the Midas touch, uh, the Lincoln Project, Republican voters against Trump, et cetera. And so that's an element that didn't exist before that is going to be worth watching. Um, as to whether there's an October surprise or not, I think the world at this point, including China and Russia, are actually very wary of that. And, and, and at least if you look at Chinese actions recently, uh, proving rather um, immune to being goaded into actions that might happen. But hey, you know, we still have 60, what, 61 days left. So an awful lot of time. It was a really interesting chat with John Bolton and Simon, I'll come to you on that. One of his suggestions for an October surprise was another meeting with Kim Jong-un. Um, I went to the first two. So, you know, I'm curious <laughs> to think whether there might be another one or whether that's even possible in this COVID environment. Is that slightly off the wall? Oh, look, 
he it's Donald Trump, right? So you can't say no to anything. And that's why maybe they could have a Zoom chat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, look, I, I just don't know that what if what that buys him at the moment. Um, something like that. Typically the way October surprises work. Um, it would have to be something monumental with, with North Korea. Um, and, and what's North, why would North Korea give him anything? Uh, you know, what, what concessions would be Trump be making in order to get something out of North Korea that would be election moving? It's hard to imagine that that deal is, is possible. But I'm, I'm more thinking October surprise. I'm thinking something domestic. Um, that there's, a, there's some big bit of opposition research on Biden. They might be saving a big drop on and perhaps with an assist from, you know, the way they got an assist from um, a foreign actor um, from Russia last time. Is that in the offing, number one? You know, that's what I'm thinking of as being perhaps more likely this time around. And, and the other big surprise might be the debates themselves. Mark keeps alluding to this need for Trump to get back to his insurgent self when he's on prompter as he was at the white house the other night despite the amazing production value of the south lawn trump is very stilted when his aides have got him um tied to the prompter um yes. he's much he's much more effective in that free-flowing stream of consciousness that i know you've seen multiple times i've seen i've seen him on the stump um it's sort of the most unusual style of political speech making from people like us who kind of have an idea about conventional political communication looks like, but gee, it works with his base. And, 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 and the media can't take their eyes off it either. You just get clip after clip out of it. And so getting, can he get back to that mode of campaigning? And that's why I just keep coming back to the debates. They're going to be, they're his last turn at bat, I think, to really get the poll bump and a bit of recovery in the polls that he needs to sort of people start to think this is actually really kind of, wow, we got, we're back to game on. And so they're, they're the things I'm looking for, Zoe. And does he bring something to those debates? Is there a drop in the 24, 36 hours before debate one, debate two, that puts Biden back on his heels with some oppo research? Um, that's the scenario I'm thinking now, because right now we are a bit stuck in a groove. Um, he can't change the narrative as Mark is suggesting. Fine. What are the issues I'd really like the campaign on? Well, they're A, B and C over here, but COVID just won't get out of the frame. And, yeah. and he's trying the law and order thing and people kind of aren't really buying it. They look at Biden and just say, he, you know, he's not an Antifa puppet. You know, that's not really playing, uh, I think. And I think that's what the last week of polls is showing us. So I just keep coming back to, is there some sort of narrative changer going to drop out of the debates? Yeah. Can I ask, so Mark, just a, can I ask Sorry, a on this very particular thing? Because I understand that, and Simon's logic is sound. That may be the last turn at bat. But if you look at President Trump's performance in the last month alone, the Jonathan Swan interview, you know, the Chris Wallace interview, uh, I mean, you know, there are attempts on the part of his campaign to question Biden's mental acuity. But I'm kind of wondering, do you really want him on a debate stand? Are you comfortable with him in that environment? He doesn't seem to be at the same place he was three years ago. So, Mark, if you were, if you were advising the Trump campaign now, would, would you see the, the, the debates as holding more promise or more peril given the president's performance in recent days? Well, both. But they're the, they're, you know, I think Simon's right. They're, they're, they're a rare opportunity to get out of the, out of the COVID tunnel. Uh, that that he's in, and the the way they'd be thinking about it is okay. You know, we might need that that structure because at least we're guaranteed to be able to talk about tax, and we're guaranteed to be talking about opportunity and red tape and all those things he needs to talk about, which are typical, you know, fodder for the GOP. He just doesn't have the opportunity, as Simon says, because he's been overwhelmed by all these other circumstances. And as my mentor, Richard Worthland Reagan's pollster, used to say, you know, the one thing the president has at the end of the day is the ability to control the timing and circumstances of events, right? And when you think about what's happened, he's, he's not controlled that because of COVID. Mm. So, yes, I agree it presents some peril. Um, the other is that Jonathan Swan of you, I, I look, I think, you know, we're all fancy people and we take out of those things what we want to see. I don't think necessarily voters saw what we saw. However, 
Um, I, you know, he, he does need that opportunity to debate a range of issues and at least to try and unsettle Biden, who is very structured. I mean, he's a learned politician. He's not going to change. So I, 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 I think if you both think of both camps, I, my view is both camps would be asking that very, very good question you've asked. And on the balance of possibilities, probably more a risk to Biden than it is to Trump, although it does present risks, I agree, to both. I think it's interesting uh, what you're saying, Simon, about the fact that, you know, we've seen Donald Trump reading from a teleprompter. Um, and as you said, Mark, we've seen him in these sort of controlled environments, like in interviews that he doesn't particularly enjoy. My, my feeling, having observed him for a long time um, on the campaign and after, is that he'd be feeling very frustrated uh, and previously, when his staff have tried to keep him on a leash, they've managed to do it for minimal periods, and then inevitably there's some sort of explosion, um, and it's that may well him. be which which plays well for him, and that may well be uh, the debates. But then again, that's not really his preferred forum, necessarily, no, is it? But it, but it is something that's not the current set of circumstances, right? So let's call the current set of circumstances what they are, you know, it's a mix of interviews and opportunities and rallies and all, but, but clearly, as, as we've all said, there's, there's been flatlining largely, you know, if you look over time, I agree that really hasn't shifted much. So it does need something that hasn't happened yet. And that's, that's the debate. But, but also I would warn all of us because we, you know, we go to fancy restaurants and we go on international, you know, uh, uh, you know, webinar calls, and, and but our interpretation isn't the same as voters' interpretation. I give you a difficult thing to talk about, but but I thought was axial. And one of the pollsters for for one of the state campaigns, you know, one of one of the swing state campaigns that I know in the GOP was doing focus groups in two thousand and six, uh, just after you know a day or two days after that that terrible the unforgivable thing he said about women and, and, you know, just, just terrible. Um, and, you know, in Australia, you'd probably be locked up for them about those lewd comments. And, and a really interesting thing happened because it shows the true schism in most politics around the world, which isn't demographic. It's reflected by demographics, but it's really the schism between the connected, the elites, the knowledgeable, and the getting on with life, I'm not really interested in politics a lot. And it was a focus group with working women. So, you know, warehouse workers, front office workers, nurses. And the issue was raised about, about Donald Trump's comments about women. And the women in these focus groups said, absolutely disgusting, unacceptable, absolutely unacceptable. But the women who are outing him are women with power and they will succeed and they will embarrass him. But in my workplace and in my hospital and in my school, if that happens to me, I'm powerless. So what you thought was a simple partisan issue had this schism of power versus non-power. And this is what really divides America today is, you know, I'm not, who's representing me against the elites or not? And going back to the Trump thing, he has an opportunity to talk about that because COVID's not an elite versus non-elite issue. It affects everybody. Taxes. So I thought that was a really, you know, interesting moment from that campaign in that the punter's view about what we thought was a lay-down misere, you know, it's all over Red Rover for Donald Trump moment was interpreted in a completely different way than folk like us do in calls like this. I think that leads to an, another question because certainly I've had several similar conversations with Donald Trump's supporters and even sort of wavering people on the edge um, that may or may not support him. Um, but here we are in 2020 heading into an election after he's been in office for four years. People who voted for him for those reasons, because he was going to explode the elitism, because he was going to drain the swamp, um, because he was going to return manufacturing to the flyover states and all those sorts of things. Do you, 
do you read that those people feel that they've been validated, that, that those things have been delivered to them or not? Well, on, the, on some of them, for example, on the track numbers I've seen from our colleagues in the US, certainly on the economy before COVID and expectations of the economy after COVID, were amongst Republican voters actually, actually improved at longer term. Um, health hand, handling of the health crisis itself is terrible, terrible numbers. So I would say that he would have been in a strengthened position on the economy, notwithstanding everything that's happened. Um, on immigration, well, that's a case of, you know, it's highly emotional message. You're not going to be persuaded by rational arguments about whether the war worked or not. You're going to maintain your position. And that positioning on that Republican versus Democrat from the numbers I've seen is relatively inelastic in terms of the gender setting. So he's lost the economy. He's, you know, he's, he's reaffirmed the economy. He's still what he says on the packet in terms of unconventional. He's still certainly, even from the reaction of the elites shaking up Washington, so he's kept that promise in a sort of emotional sense. But on, on, on a united America positively driving into the future, which is kind of a, you know, a thematic promise, that certainly hasn't happened. And that's, to me, the axial moment the extent to which he's able to demonstrate that we can, they can overcome these differences to, to, to drive forward, that's a very th difficult thing for him to say when he's bogged down in riots and COVID. So, um, that's why he's got to get on the tax and, 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 and hip pocket and get those, uh, those, those key turnout women voters to say, okay, Biden's going to hurt my hip pocket. Uh, he's going to, you know, he's going to limit my ability of my kids to, to, to seek opportunity, uh, all those sorts of things that, that, that enable him tactically to focus on his opponent and, and drop out some of those hard, uh, hard, um, hard numbers for him. Because he's still got, I think, on the latest numbers just in front of me, I think Biden's still got about a 6 or 7% soft vote. And, you know, if, if the Trump campaign can turn that soft vote into, oh, just not turning out, there's still some hope for them in that regard. Gordon, you had something? Yeah, I just want to chime in specifically on that, because going back to the question I raised earlier, what would Trump need to do to increase you know, his support significantly? And uh, is he capable of doing it? So if you look at over the last, you know, again, you know, three and a half years, his support rate has been remarkably, remarkably stable. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we, we can talk about whether or not he gets out and, and let Trump be Trump in, in a big rally and, and he does the unconventional. But I don't know that you get any new voters from that type of behavior. Now, one of the things where I, I furiously agree with Mark is that there is a risk uh, of just having, you know, elite level conversations of missing what's happening underneath it, everything else. But uh, for me, you know, my primary information feeds are, are very bifurcated in mm -hmm. Twitter. You know, I tend to select to follow those people whose analysis I respect on both sides of the aisle, but they, they tend to fall one way. So my Twitter feed is so very different than my Facebook feed. And my Facebook feed, again, a thousand people who are largely relatives uh, and, and on the religious side of things. And for them, you know, increasingly Trump's antics are doing nothing. The only thing that's holding them in is abortion, abortion, abortion. So for me, the big issue that's coming up, which is you know, the potential black swan, is what happens if, if uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg passes away? Uh, uh, because you know, uh, Rick Wilson, who is a driver behind 538, not 538, uh, the driver behind the Lincoln Project, you know, yeah. talked about the Republican fetishism of the court. So despite everything else we're talking about, all these people who are troubled by these actions are saying, but judges, but judges, but abortion, but abortion, but abortion. And the reason I think that issue is so important is because one, it provides a rationale, but number two, that's the one issue that has the potential to, to energize the base and drive turnout, right? You know, so if, you're, if this really is a question of turnout, you know, then, then issues like that become far more important, I think, than the economy or COVID or other issues which have not proven the ability to kind of shake that up. Uh, and then, then that just becomes a question of a, a competition between that issue's ability to motivate turnout versus the reaction on, and organization on the other side's ability to turn out in a very uncertain environment. I, th I think um, Donald Trump, in, if you were to 
be ticking boxes against his achievements, he would certainly list stacking the courts as something that he's succeeded at. Um, I think having spent roughly 50 minutes talking about Donald Trump, perhaps it's time (laughs) to start considering the other side, um, which is, well, okay, can Joe Biden and Kamala Harris then motivate the people that you're talking about to get out and vote? whether it's based on social issues like abortion, whether it's based on a protest vote against Donald Trump or whatever it is. Simon, do you want to have a bite at that before we go to Mark? Yeah, the latter. You nailed it, right? Um, um, This idea that the Democrats need to unify their base and, and, you know, I remember the conversation about the VP pick. Um, Oh, it's got to be a pick that really solidifies the base after they tack so far to the centre with Biden at the top of the ticket. I thought some of that was overblown um, because de- Democrats want one thing and it's to get rid of Donald Trump. And, they, and that's why they went with Biden, uh, the most kind of centrist candidate they can put up there to, to get that job done. And they know they got to get it done in, in three states that Obama won, but they lost um, um, in, in Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, um, um, and pulling, um, making, making the ticket um, energizing some of their base who I think, as I said, I think they had, but number two, um, getting back some of those centrist voters and it looks like they're doing that if you can believe the polls. Now, um, the thing I keep coming back to is I, keep, I look at the midterm turnout, Zoe. Um, so turnout in the 2018 midterm um, was at a century high for midterm elections. We haven't seen turnout like that in a US midterm election since 1912. Um, and as a share of the electorate, non-white voters went to their highest level we've seen since we've started tracking that, not just in a presidential election, but in any election, right? Now, and you say, the comeback is to say, yeah, but Trump wasn't on the, on the ballot and his people stayed home. And indeed, that's what happened to Obama, right? And his midterm losses as well. But we're talking an altogether sort of qualitatively different turnout environment, what we saw in that midterm. And... Um, because white people turned out to vote too. You don't get the century high turnout just on the back of a surge in minority turnout. It was game on for, in a way, as I said, I hadn't seen in 100 years. Now, if, if that sort of happens again, then I think Trump's in real trouble. Um, if it's it's a just, sheer... Can I just pull you up on that just on sure. one thing? Like that, mm-hmm. covering the midterms for me was sort of more head exploding than actually covering the 2016 election in some ways because there are so many state and local issues and particularities of candidates that people are voting on rather than a sort of holistic political ethos. Um, so therefore, can you translate? I mean, obviously, there's some of some of that enthusiasm can translate. But ha- how much does that translate? I, I think there was a, I think it got played out in different ways, as you know, as Tip O'Neill used to say, all politics is local and, and longtime speaker of the US House. That's true, right? In those house, but there was this unifying factor. And that was, um, we've got to take back at least one institution for Democrats. We, we, in that sense, being Democrats, have to take back one institution uh, and, they, and the House, right? Um, and so, um, you know, there's no mistaking it. Trump was what that election was about. The way it may have played out on the ground, Zoe, and in a governor's race in, in one state in, you know, in the southwestern United States versus a Senate race in the northeast, of course, they're going to be very different um, in terms of the issues and the things that get emphasised. But, but that was a referendum on Trump is pretty much all midterms are increasingly a, a chance for the, the electorate to, to, if there's buyer's regret, that's when you start to see it. And again, just that explosion in, in turnout, you go, boy, if, the, if that's what's in store, you know, if, if a little bit of that translates into the general in 20, then remember how narrowly Trump won in, in 77,000 votes across three states, uh, burned into the back of my eyelids, um, um, you know, 0.08% of the electorate um, is how, how narrow those wins were. And, you know, a few Bernie Sanders voters stayed home on the margin and Trump did this amazing job of getting people off the couch who typically don't vote, uh, at least aren't reliable voters. But once the Dems say, wow, we can't afford to sit it out and there's no like, you know, oh, Bernie's not the candidate, so I'm going to sit it out. No Democrat is doing that. They didn't do it in 18. And I don't think they're going to do it in 2020. And so 
that's that's my sense about what's really driving and what will, I think is going to be on paper at least theoretically ex ante expectations are of enormous turnout. Um, and as we talked about very early in the call, I think the real interesting thing is is how much of that translates into the official statistics that get certified and send people to the electoral college to actually decide the thing on January two or three, uh, when the election results are formally finally certified by the Electoral College. Um, that's the big unknown. But right now, you know, there's just tremendous energy uh, to get out and vote on both sides. So Mark, coming back to you, we've only got a couple of minutes left. But does that mean that that Biden is kind of a placeholder, in a way, um, the least worse, the, the least offensive, just kind of a someone people can tolerate? Uh, if they're going to come out and vote anyway against well, Donald Trump. Well, it's bizarre because you could, you could argue that they both are. Trump is just a, you know, the village needed to be burnt, so he happened to be the tor torch, you know, so he's, he's a placeholder, he's a proxy. And you could argue on the basis of what Simon just said that, you know, that, 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 uh, that Biden's the same, that he's, a, he's, a, he's good enough to get rid of Trump. And that's an extraordinarily bad thing for democracy. But here's what I'm most worried about on behalf of my American friends. If it's not a clear result, mm. in a way, it could be the least legitimate presidency ever, regardless of what happens. If Biden wins narrowly, even if he wins fairly, there will be accusations and a little bit of civil unrest about his legitimacy going forward. There was decency when, when, when George Bush Jr. won. The, the, the Democrats did a very, very decent thing and decided not to you know, apart, you know, they contested the, the, you know, the hanging chads heavily. But once it was declared, I've got to say credit to credit to the Democrats at the time. They didn't do that. They didn't go there. But Trump will. And certainly a lot of very, very disappointed anti-Trumpers on the Democrat side will. I'm most worried about the legitimacy of this election and therefore the government afterwards, because if you think there is a partisan divide now, imagine disputed ballots, disputed postal votes afterwards. That, that's a very scary scenario for all of us who love the United States for what it is. Can I chime in on that, Zoe? Uh, today, in, uh, yesterday in the Washington Post, there was a piece by Rosa Brooks, uh, an organization called the Transition Integrity Project. Uh, and they actually did war gaming on the US presidential election, which is something I never thought I would, would hear about. And their conclusion was out of seven different scenarios, the only one that did not result in violence and a constitutional crisis was an overwhelming Biden victory. Uh, and, and there's a lot of scenarios where increasingly people are concerned with, with the, the, the mail-in ballot, the difficulty in counting, that is pretty likely now, absent a massive swing, that we're going, not gonna have a clear result on election night. And that just opens the, the door for a lot of, of uncertainty and instability particularly in an environment where uncertainty and instability have been the primary tool uh, of at least one of the parties pushing this. And, so, and, and, uh, and just 15 seconds, from, 15 seconds from me, Zoe, on this one. Um, uh, this is where, this is not just a spectator sport for an Australian audience. This is where Australian national interests start to become impacted. Um, um, who benefits from a deeply contested um, American post-election environment where fundamental questions about the legitimacy of the, of the government are there. They are not America's friends. Um, Correct. It is very much in their interest that that be the case. Um, and for a close ally of the United States and any close ally of the United States, I know governments all around the world uh, are starting to get their departments of foreign affairs or whatever they are to start, what are those scenarios look like? What does, who are we engaging with? What is the ability of that government to come together and deliver on the strategic aspirations that I think both sides of American politics agree with that the United States is in an era of great power rivalry with China, for instance, that, that we need whole of government approaches. If hanging over the next government in the United States are these deep questions about its legitimacy, um, how does it present itself to the world? How does it rally its own people and the people in the government to do the heavy lifting that both sides of American politics, they agree on this, there's a big heavy lift needed to rise to the China challenge. And I think that's where 
there is a foreign policy, there is an Australian national interest implication from this talk about who's going to do what on election night or in the immediate aftermath. That's right. And if, I if, think if COVID is steroid for division, um, a disputed election is meta methamphetamine for division. I mean, it just, it, it's just, it's crazy stuff and it's very, very scary. And I know that pollsters on both sides of, uh, 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 that I know in, in the States are worried about it. And it's 2020, so anything could happen. Lots to ponder on your Labor Day weekend, everyone. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Our special guest has been Mark Texter, co-founder and non-executive director of CT Group, and also on our expert panel today, Professor Simon Jackman, chief executive of the US Studies Centre in Sydney, and Professor Gordon Flake, founding CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre. And Simon, I'll hand over to you to close. Well, well thank you, Zoe, and um, for keeping... Um three loud mouths at the time today. Uh, very much appreciate it. And, um, and Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Mark doesn't do this very often. Um, um, I'm so pleased he's giving the US Study Center a little bit of his time, um, occasionally doing in-house stuff for us with, that, with our students, which was remarkable last year, and this public event today. Um, terrific, Mark, to, to have, have you along. Um, and and Janine, are we going to tease? What's coming up, Janine? We've got the coming up soon. Yes. Well, look, in this series that we're doing in partnership with the Perth Centre, um, um, Gordon and I will be talking to, and Gordon, your cousin, um, former Senator Jeff Flake, um, who we had the great pleasure of hosting um, here in Australia. Oh, my, it seems so long ago, doesn't it? In January. Um, 14 years ago in January. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Um, but, but Jeff Flake uh, will be our guest in, in our next monthly check-in. And, and boy, oh boy, we'll just be a month from the election uh, next Friday. Uh, the next, uh, sorry, Friday, uh, the 2nd of October. That'll be 1 o'clock here on the East Coast and 11 um, out on the West Coast. So look forward to that.